Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. start off with, we're joined by our panel to discuss some of the stories in this morning's newspapers, preview and review the week behind and ahead. On one side of the table is a former Labour politician, but also a journalist by trade whose investigations into the 1990s led to the Beef Tribunal. Uh, Susan O'Keefe, good, good morning, morning to you. Good morning. Ivan. Alongside her is former editor of the Kilkenny People. Sad day for Kilkenny. In fact, I'm shocked to find that I'm the only person who spent the night dancing at the crossroads after Wexford's heroic win in uh, Innovate Park last night. But I'll I'll continue. Editor of the Kilkenny People, been a correspondent in Washington and London for the German Press Agency, spent a time as group group business editor at INM and is now Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College. Thomas Malloy, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Ivan. And yes, that grunt you heard was Fergus Finlay, uh, the former advisor and strategist for Labour, now chief executive uh, with the Children's charity Bernardas is also most welcome. Thank you, Ivan. I feel really welcome after being described as grunting. <laughs> I won't. I won't say what I normally say when people say grunting. But anyway, let me tell you what's on the front page of the, of the Irish newspapers. Uh, well, in anticipation of Leo being Taoiseach on Thursday, uh, not only the story how he shed three stone and talking to Neve Horn, but Vragker, my Brexit cabinet, looking to appoint extra super junior ministers to deal with Brexit. Uh, some suggestion that Simon Coveney wants to go to foreign affairs. He may not be let out of housing. That's in the Sindo. The Sunday Business Post Radcliffe to scrap Noonan's two and a half billion euro rainy day fund. This was something part of the supply and confidence deal with Fianna Fáil that Michael McGrath wanted. Well, he's for spending it on capital right now. Um, the Sunday Times goes with DUP agrees to prop up May at Westminster. A little bit of confusion over the last uh, 12, 14 hours. Uh, they're in talks. They haven't finalised anything, but they probably will do a deal. And finally, the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, had received or got a uh, from the Taoiseach elect Leo uh, a, a piece, which is a column they have. Social welfare is not a way of life, Radcar. Taoiseach elect writes about his vision for Ireland. And Michael Ring and Regina Doherty tipped for promotion. Well, of course, the week that was in it, uh, the enormous slap in the face that Prime Minister Theresa May got a most ham-fisted campaign ever ending, starting with a majority, ending up with none. Let's start by hearing from herself. As I reflect on the results, I will reflect on uh, what we need to do in the future. What I think is important in the Brexit negotiations, which will start in 10 days' time, is that we have the certainty of a government that can take forward a plan into those Brexit negotiations. That's why I think, at this critical time for our country, it's important to form a government in the national interest. And as the largest party with the most seats and most votes, uh, we're the only party that can form that government to take take this forward. I'll shortly be... uh, forming my cabinet and obviously there'll be further ministerial posts and other personnel issues are for other days. That was Theresa May speaking on Sky News. Uh, Turning to the front pages of the British Sunday papers, the Mail on Sunday goes with Boris set to launch bid to be PM as May clings on. He has denied that, calling it tripe. The Sunday Times five cabinet ministers urge Boris to topple May in office but not in power. The Sunday Telegraph and the Observer May's premiership in peril. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the programme Matthew Paris, former Conservative MP and, of course, well-known columnist with The Times. And I watched with interest his insight talking to the closest people to Theresa May on BBC Newsnight during the week. Matthew, you join us now. You said yesterday in The Times it's make-believe to think May can survive. Just how long? It's either a matter of a few days or a few months. If she is prepared to say that she only regards herself as a caretaker prime minister, setting up an interim administration to kick off the Brexit talks and to get the government back on track, but that she will be standing down in the autumn, I think her party would be prepared to 
let her stay until the autumn. But if she carries on talking as though she is prime minister and she's going to be prime minister until the next general election, I think that there will be mayhem in the conservative ranks in the next few days, almost the next few hours, and that by the end of the week ahead of us, uh, her, her leadership will be over. Okay, well, let's digest some of that. First of all, a deal with the DUP, a little bit of uncertainty overnight. Is it a slam dunk? It's not a slam dunk. It's, it's, I think it's a slam dunk that the DUP would probably like to elevate themselves into the position of a junior partner in the British government. But um, it's not clear that it's even in keeping with the Good Friday Agreement, which requires the British government to remain neutral in, 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 in its treatment of the different parties in Northern Ireland. I, I, there's, there's no problem about a, a, in, in legislative terms about a deal with the DUP. They're only interested in Northern Ireland. They wouldn't be trying to spread their strange ideas to the mainland of the United Kingdom. But I, I just don't see it as a, a credible or, or dignified way to carry on, and I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, if you don't carry that on, then you face the prospect of another general election. Yes, and, and this is the mess that, that Britain is, is now in uh, politically. No one wants another general election. We don't know who the uh, leader of the Conservative Party would be. And Jeremy Corbyn is at the height of his power at, at the moment, and, and we might amazingly end up with a serious socialist government within a few months. In terms of the inner workings of the Tory party, when this bloodletting releases itself, be it in, imminently or in the autumn, as you refer to the two options, is it a two-horse race between uh, Davis and Boris? It looks like that now, but you never know before a, a leadership contest has started who the, the runners and riders are going to be. And sometimes these things have a dynamic of their own and, and somebody no one had thought of comes through the middle. Both those those men have um, a great a great strengths in a claim on the leadership and also great weaknesses. But Boris is, uh, is, is fuzzy, unfocused, doesn't appear to be very good at running a department, isn't particularly uh, good on the, the details of policy and has had a very colourful life. It, it, it's, uh, it's a leadership bid that, that could actually soar and it could equally crash. David Davis has also had quite a maverick life resigning once from, from Parliament on, on, on some issue of terrorist legislation and then coming back again. But his standing has increased as he has been the Brexit secretary. He appears to have been quite, quite steady and careful in the way he's handled things. But there, there may well be others. Amber Rudd was spoken of. She only just scraped in with a tiny majority in her own constituency, and she does seem to have flip-flopped from being a very keen Remainer to joining a Brexit government, but, but that, that's another name in the frame. Matthew, you'll appreciate from an Irish perspective the big issue is not so much the political drama, which is intriguing for anorex like me, it's Brexit. Um, it, the, the inference here is, A, UKIP is dead, a hard Brexit is dead and that this is good news for Ireland and that it, particularly with the DUP and the cross-border, you know, the 500 kilometres north-south on the island uh, will all be moves in a better direction. What's your interpretation of the fallout of the election for Brexit? Well, I, I agree with the assessment you've just made and you say is being made in, in, in Ireland. I think that's right. There's serious problems, certainly for hard Brexit, perhaps for Brexit at all. Uh, even if Mrs. May's bid to do a deal with the DUP works, uh, that will tend to give more weight to the insistence that there should not be a hard border set up uh, on the island of I Ireland. Uh, the, the DUP is just as much opposed to that north of the border as, as, as many would be south of the border. However, the, the DUP would also be very strongly opposed to making a hard border, but making it with the mainland, so that it would be at Stranra, Holyhead, and, and Fishguard, that the, uh, the the border of of, um, of the, the single market and the customs union would take place. Obviously, the DUP would hate that too. So it's quite hard to see what the future of the okay. But of the can you give us can you be. give us a specific insight into the profile of the parliamentary 
uh, Tory party now after the election vis-a-vis Brexit? Is it full of more Brexiteers? Is it full of more moderates? Is the Tory party realising that a hard Brexit is not a vote winner? What's the temperature of the Tory party in relation to Brexit, do you think? Well, it's, it's very hard to know. My own newspaper, The Times, have, have made their own private surveys of the prospective parliamentary candidates, um, many of them now members of parliament, and the impression we have is that the new parliament is not going to be uh, more hardline Brexit than the, the old parliament. The old parliament basically didn't want Brexit at all, but were just felt pushed along by the referendum result. That the, the new Conservative MPs are not, on the whole, right-wing hardliners, and, and a few of those have actually lost their seats. So I think we, you still have a parliament in the United Kingdom that's feeling distinctly seasick about the whole Brexit process. Matthew Paris there. Well, our panel are here. Uh, let's, uh, we could spend hours discussing the colour and intrigue of British politics, as I just did there. But Fergus, let's focus on two issues. A deal between the Conservatives, depending on the DUP, supplying confidence, call it what you will, and where we're now at with Brexit. What's your assessment of the fallout? Well, I, I, I think probably the first thing you'd have to say is that any attempt to predict the future based on our experience of the recent past um, would qualify us for uh, a stay in a, a, a quiet and dark room. Um, I mean, we, we've, uh, you know, a prime minister who was in an unassailable position a week ago and has now been completely found out. We've a leader of the opposition who was the most reviled leader of the politic of, uh, of the Labour Party for years and years, who ran an absolutely brilliant campaign and could technically form a minority government. Uh, it's all changed here and it's all changed in, in Northern Ireland. And I mean, one of the most remarkable things in some ways is that you have Arlene Foster, who a couple of months ago was hanging on for dear life to her leadership and her job and so on, and is now apparently the kingmaker in, in British politics. What any of that means, I haven't the faintest idea. I mean, I, it seems to me much more likely that whatever factions are formed in the Conservative Party and, for example, there was no Scottish faction and there's now a significant Scottish faction uh, in the Conservative Party in the UK that they're going to determine the future rather than anything the DUP does. I, I was around for, uh, you know, John Major's struggles uh, to try and win and hold the support of unionism at a time when he had no majority in the House of Commons. Um, and I remember how incredibly difficult it made life partly because they were incapable of making decisions. They were incapable of, I, I don't mean uh, the whole government, but I meant the, the unionist supporters of that government. You never knew where they stood on anything. Um, and I suspect um, whoever is negotiating, you remember Seamus Brennan, uh, Fianna Fáil chief whip for years, used to spend his entire life keeping four or five independents um comfortable and happy in supporting a minority government. Well, whoever's charged with the task of keeping the DUP happy, uh, I think, is going to find there's no sleep, there's no weekend, there's no rest, there's no nothing, um, because uh, they're not going to know what they want from one day to the next. Um, they, well, just on this specific thing, tomorrow morning, <coughs> the talks resume in Stormont. They've had no executive and, and they face the prospect from the 29th of June taking a literal interpretation of direct rule. Do you think the bona fides, now that all the rest have been nearly cleared out of the way, UUP, SDLP, certainly in the context of Westminster, that they will do a deal to set up an executive or does this make it more difficult? Well, it, that unfortunately, that remains to be seen too. I mean, the, the, the big issue is Brexit. The most urgent issue is a power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland. Um, and and even where Brexit is concerned, forming a coherent view at the level of an executive in Northern Ireland around Brexit is going to be really challenging. Um, re-establishing the kind of necessary north-south links around Brexit is going to be really challenging. My real fear is um, that uh, they, uh, the DUP will have got an, inje- an injection of arrogance from from this week's results and will... I mean, in a so sense... So surely Arlene wants to be First Minister again. Well, Well, I presume she does. But, I mean, in a sense, the last administration collapsed because it could only be done on her terms. Um, and, and uh, you know, this reforming of an administration is going to involve compromise. So you're asking people who have had a huge shot in the arm, who now regard themselves are being portrayed as kingmakers 
in British politics to compromise uh, with everyone else in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and particularly to sit down with Sinn Féin and work out compromises that are going to be unpalatable to DUP members around things like an Irish Language Act, the the ongoing continuing fallout from the Cash for Ash situation. All of those issues, none of those have gone away. Um, they're all going to surface again in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I think it's going to be really difficult to see how it comes to a happy ending. Um, but it's really important that it should. Susan, on that, I spoke to, to, to Jerry Adams in this <coughs> studio on Friday and I said, look, you know, you had a kind of veto, you didn't want Darlene, you seem to have relaxed on that. Uh, what do you detect as the bona fides of the two power players, the DUP and Sinn Féin, in this new dispensation? And do you think that the British government if they're in cahoots with the DUP, actually under the Good Friday Agreement, causes them difficulties. Well, you heard Matthew Paris make that exact point. The Good Friday Agreement was predicated on the fact that the UK government be the neutral party, be the player that brings them together. Uh, And for the last three months, we've seen a stalemate between the main players, which were Sinn Féin and and the DUP, uh, with, with the British government trying to bring them together, trying to coerce them, trying to hold their hands. And now we see a situation overnight where both the parties actually did well at this election. Sinn Féin increased their seats and the DUP did well. And so they're both stronger than they were five minutes ago. But you now have this idea that perhaps the DUP will be encouraged, persuaded, coerced themselves into a deal uh, with the Conservative Party in order to prop it up. And how then on earth can the British government be a neutral player any longer? It can't. And so the idea that the Good Friday Agreement, the whole concept of, of that peace uh, agreement, um, that whole formation of an assembly, how can that still have any uh, capacity uh, to sustain uh, when the British government's role in it changes substantially. But that sounds to me like a Sinn Féin alibi to continue to not get into an executive. Well, I, I, it, it may not be so, so much an alibi as a reality. I mean, you know, you can use it as an alibi and, and if Sinn Féin opts well, but, but to but do sorry, that... If the DUP set out a shopping list, it'll either be the familiar Irish thing of a begging bowl, give us more money for universities and infrastructure, or they'll say something about flags and parades. So they could either go to the past or go to the future. I mean, but well, surely the fundamentals of setting up an executive and setting up an assembly are not something that the British government and the DUP would like to avoid, surely. Well, I I do think here what we're making a leap here anyway. The idea that this will sustain, as as Fergus has outlined, the whole idea of doing a deal anyway between between the Conservatives and the DUP with their their own internal instabilities and incapacity to make decisions. We may well actually be facing a new general election in the UK, which all of this goes to naught. The whole idea that there might be a a sort of soft Brexit coming through at at this level in this arrangement. I'm actually of the view that this won't told at all that this deal that they'll try to patch together is so patched. Theresa May is so damaged by what happened. Just close your eyes. So fragile. So fragile. Just think of her for one second again. Think of her on that campaign trail and think of the awkwardness and the uncertainty in her whole body and then try to imagine her now in this new most uncertain state trying to become a leader talking about stability when quite clearly she hasn't got any. So actually I don't think this deal is going to work at all. Uh, I do think however that that the DUP and Sinn Féin have an absolute responsibility to to sit down and start working out something on behalf of Northern Ireland for the people who live in Northern Ireland and who want a stable assembly uh, to organise their affairs. Uh, Thomas Monroy, if I could move on to the Brexit thing and the economic aspect of this. It strikes me that it's a win-win for us. You know, UKIP is dead. A narrative of a hard Brexit, give me a blank cheque, was rejected. Not only that, the DUP have said, high on their shopping list is a cross-border issue, and Ruth Davison has said this morning uh, in Scotland that she wants to hear in terms of Brexit less about migration and more about trade. Tick, 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 I'm thinking for Ireland. What do you think? Well, I couldn't agree more. I think this has been a fantastic result for, for the Republic of Ireland. We have, after all, an Irish party now at the heart of British government, for a while anyway. We have uh, a very comprehensive vote against a hard Brexit from all parts of British society. I don't see how any future uh, Prime Minister can ignore what, what's been said. Perhaps the, the only worry, if one wants to be pessimistic here, is that um, there's 
a worry that Brussels may not learn the lessons of Brexit. It seemed to me that, that, that the one good thing that could come from Brexit would be that the European Union would reform itself. And it may be that, that and, and we certainly in this country need reform, perhaps more than many other countries, it may be that the, the reform impetus in Brussels will now dissipate. But in the immediate term, in the next two years, surely this is a, a surprisingly good outcome. What are you what saying been, Europe should do? Well, I, I think uh, Europe... Take the foot off the neck of the Brits or what? No, I, no, no. What I'm, what I'm thinking. I think Britain is going to leave Europe. We can forget about that. We need to okay. move on. We need to think now. We're stuck in a 27 nation uh, yeah. trade block that, that 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 is failing to deal with many problems. Most notably, you. So my question, I'm sort of veering out here, is May and the Brits are weakened as they face into tomorrow week negotiations. I, I, how will Europe deal with that and say, Ah, we have them now? Or will they say, hold on a minute, maybe we can do a different... And uh, Matthew alluded to it, no Brexit? Fergus? I I don't think there'll be no Brexit, but I think uh, Thomas has hit an important point. Um, In a sense, I think there are two two slightly separate points. The need for reform within the EU has never been stronger. Um, uh, it, it, It was, in many ways, the perception of an entrenched elite, an anti-democratic um, uh, system that led to Brexit in the first place, apart from a range of other issues. Um, I, um, my own feeling is that the drive for reform in Europe will now be led by Macron anyway, um, and that it's unlikely... In what direction? Well, I, I, I think a reformed Europe means a more inclusive Europe. It means a less bureaucratic Europe. It, need, it means a more democratic Europe. Um, it means a return to some of the... Uh, social priorities that you know previous European leaders like Jacques Delors and so on, things like uh, integration, coherence, um, uh, you know, support of the from the centre for weaker bits uh, of the union, the Europe of old in some ways is I think what a lot of people want back. Now, how sustainable it is in the context of changed economics remains to be seen. But it seems to me that that's where Macron. Um, Hollande tried to go there. But I thought he was a bit more globalisation uh, and economic hard-ass than that. A, a, little bit, a little bit of both, I think. A little bit of both. But, um, yeah, but uh, a little bit of both never really works, does it? I mean, if you have globalisation and... As well, Bertie got away with it for 14 years. But other than that... <laughs> yes, and look, look, look that what left behind him. That was a little bit of everything. <laughs> look what he left behind him. But, but I, I do think that if you, if you, go in, if you, if you reach into that area, inevitably that, that just ends up with nothing. And, and Macron seems to have been able to, to garner this extraordinary vote, set up this party en marche in a year and look today like he might have a landslide victory uh, based on, on um, you know, something about hope and something about a new vision. And I just worry that it won't sustain. Well, it, is a, it is a vision of a different Europe. It's a vision. It's a, it's a vision. Of, and yes, you're right. It may come to nothing. Um, I'm only saying, uh, really, that if the drive for reform is going to go, it's going to be led, it's going to be led by from there, not from anything uh, to do in the relations, we're going to take a break and move on to, to Leo's yeah. intray. Uh, but just before I let you go, I, I introduced you, Thomas, as having worked for the German press agency. I saw one text this morning, apparently from a German minister to a friendly Tory MP, saying, "Anybody but Boris." Uh, what way is all that shaven? The Germans can't can't stand Boris, even though he has quite a lot of German uh, German parentage mm. or origins. Uh, it's, it's very striking. I was in Germany not so long ago over Easter, and and. You wouldn't see a word about Brexit in the papers from one end of the week to the other. You know, this is very much our obsession, the UK obsession. It's but the further away you go, I was again in Zurich last week, and again nothing mm. about Brexit. Mm. Spain and Portugal the same. You'd hardly know what's happening. You'd hardly know what's happening. All right, right. we'll get back to our panel shortly. But just for the week that's in it, new Taoiseach on Wednesday, only put there by the grace and favour of Fianna Fáil. What are their views about Leo's intray? It's a pleasure to welcome to the programme Barry Cowan, the Fianna Fáil TD for Offaly and spokesperson on housing, planning and local government. Barry, I've been very critical and on this show. We've spoken to Father Peter McVary, Michael O'Flynn, and the message I'm getting is this housing crisis and rebuilding Ireland ain't going to fix it. What would you like to see done differently in terms of resolving our emergency housing problem? There are several key issues that need to be addressed in a holistic manner in order to address the issues at hand. Um, I read your own article you had in yesterday's paper, and you know, you've obviously been reading our own documentation. You've been paying attention to what we've been saying in this area because there's much of what you've contained in there is something that we would like to see in relation to rent. You're right, 10% increase is unsustainable. Uh, on, on an annual basis. The initiatives that were brought in relation to rent 
were welcome but didn't go far enough and we asked for a review in June of this year on those uh, initiatives. That now is, is ongoing. We would hope to see a wider extension of the rent caps into areas where it is having a crippling effect, even in my own constituency and many constituencies like it, in addition to the cities. In relation to rapid uh, house price increases, did you talk about the initiatives that was brought in earlier this year in relation to the help to buy scheme, in relation to the revision to the deposit scheme, were welcome, but not, not on their own. There had to be supply initiatives brought to bear with them, and in the absence of those supply issues uh, being brought to bear, what we have predicted has come to pass, and you've seen rapid price increases because Fine Gael are intent on having the profit margin within within price being the key, whereby we see if you have supply initiatives, you can look at the cost of construction and you can reduce the cost of construction and allow the take in relation to profit margin in that area. The Department of Finance you know, obviously has to have a rethink, as you said yourself, in relation to the VAT element in the construction sector. In the UK, you've seen a VAT holiday that has helped and increased supply, and that's something we want to do as well. You talk about, uh, you know, NAMA being reorientated as a sort of a housing agency. We specifically asked for a housing authority with expertise that could make recommendations in relation to legislative change, if necessary, in order to drive the program, rather, as I said, than depending on conventional methods within the department, which has failed miserably in recent years, not only with this plan, but with Kelly's plan beforehand. Competitive finance is another area that has to be addressed. And again, you know, in recent weeks, thankfully, we've seen the central bank initiate a consultation process, asking people their considerations in relation to the likes of the credit union becoming involved in finance in the development sector. And that can create a vehicle whereby private finance can have an impact, not only in relation to development finance, but also in relation to infrastructure finance. The 200 million that the government put forward towards infrastructure benefit is only 50 million per year. It's only a drop in the ocean. You want something akin to the service land initiative you had in the past. My central point is to move from the Custom House to the Taoiseach's department to actually drive whole-of-government epicentre approach to this. Are yeah, you all going to push that issue? Yeah, I, I, I've, no, I've no problem with that. And it, as I said to you, I've been saying consistently since 2014 many of these points, but specifically in the last year or two, we've been saying you need a housing authority driven with expertise, similar to what you had in, in the Docklands. Now, you know, it, it may have ended acrimoniously, but to be fair to it, it did the job it was tasked to do, and that was to develop the Docklands. And it didn't depend on the, the age-old systems and processes that was in place before that. It went out of its way to drive the development of that document. And that's the sort of impetus and urgency and effort that has to be made by government to drive this. And as I said to you, you know, a special unit within the department doesn't cut the mustard as far as I'm concerned because I've seen and heard the likes of it before, as I said to you, with Kelly's plan and now with Coveney's plan. And it has much merit, much of good intent and effort on his part. But unfortunately, depending on those structures within the department is not delivering houses, which is what we wanted to see. And if you say it's driven by the Taoiseach's department, so be it. I've no problem with that. It's in my interest and the interest of those I represent that this issue is resolved effectively and properly in order that people can see hope in the, in the near future. Before I let you go, Barry, I know that you will have had an insight in terms of Brian's time as Taoiseach about the type of temperament that's required, the impossibility of the job of being Taoiseach. What's your personal assessment of Leo Radker's uh, suitability and temperament for Taoiseach? We heard during the times of the supply and confidence discussions that he was on the phone, he was apathetic, disinterested, texting people. Do you think he'd make a good Taoiseach from what you've seen of him up close and personal? Well, I sincerely hope he does for the very reasons that I just mentioned to you because the area for which I have responsibility within our own party is one which is the greatest issue facing, as you rightly said in your article yesterday, facing the economy, facing the government, facing society. So from that perspective, I hope he proves to be a good teacher. I don't know him very, very well personally. I did work with him and others in the preparation and the negotiations around the provision of a competence and supply arrangements, which he and his party signed up to thereafter, and I expect him to adhere to now. And, you know, the first meeting he has had with Michal Martin last week appeared to be a good, constructive meeting whereby there'd be a re-emphasis and a refocus on the deliverability of the... But as you know, that's when he's looking for votes next Wednesday. And and so when he becomes Taoiseach and becomes... Do you think he needs to be less trigger-happy with his soundbites? Yeah, I'd imagine he'll assess, you know... You could say that that, that his, his, his modus operandi for the last number of years has been to get to the pinnacle of where he is now. He now has that. Uh, he, he 
now has the seat of power. It's how he uses it from here on in. And I would hope that he uses it in a way in which he, he recognises that he has to work collectively uh, with others, uh, not of the same persuasion or idealistic background as himself, but to reflect the, the decision of the people in putting that convoluted result in place in order to achieve results. And that, that, that's his responsibility. And he has, he has, you know, he, he did a lot of electioneering during the course of the leadership contest and was talking about a, a lot of spending that simply is not available or options that are not available to him presently. He has the only show in town is the confidence and supply arrangement. The only show in town is his program for government. And I know, and I know that the likes of the Independence Alliance can throw shapes and, and, and give the impression that they've more, need more power than they have. You know, that's their prerogative from our perspective. This government that we facilitated has a duty and an obligation to implement what's contained within our confidence supply arrangement. And it's got to a stage now, a year on from that, that we can adequately analyze and scrutinize what progress of any has been made and seek to have these issues addressed. And in the absence of that, well, obviously, we're in a, in a different space then. Barry Cowan, Fianna Fáil TD for Offaly and spokesperson on housing there. Fergus, we've had a particular focus on this programme on housing. We've had Father Peter McVary, we've had Michael O'Flynn, all the messages I'm picking up is this problem is actually going to get worse rather than being fixed. You're at the front line of this in terms of homeless families and children. Well, we work with a lot of homeless families and a lot of homeless children and I'm not going to go into huge detail about the damage it does. Um, I I think anyone can understand that if you uproot a child from his or her home, from his school or her school, from their friends, if you subject them to a life of endless travelling to and from school, nowhere to play in the evening, nowhere to do homework... Um, the impact it has on them and on their futures uh, and on their family relationships is is profound. So, and there are now several thousand such children in Ireland, and uh, and so it is a massive, massive social problem. Um, and nothing that has been suggested so far uh, is likely to have any long term effect. Uh, and the reason for that is, um, in the fifties, in the sixties, in the seventies, in the eighties, even in the nineties, we built houses in Ireland. Uh, we built houses for. Uh, through local authority programs uh, and we had uh, people taking out local authority tenancies and then we stopped. Uh, We made an ideological decision in this country that housing was something that could be supplied by the private sector uh, and um, as part of that decision we stripped out from all the local authorities the capacity to build, no planners, no architects, no development offices uh, and so on and we're only slowly beginning to get back to that. Um, Now, here's the reality of homelessness, family homelessness. Um, Half of all family homelessness is caused by family breakdown. Half of that family breakdown is caused by economic stress uh, and by all the things that go hand in hand with economic stress. There are women with children who are homeless now, who are escaping from violence, who are escaping from alcohol abuse, who are escaping from a a variety of the things that poverty causes. uh, and and so when you're talking about family homelessness, you are in the main talking about women and children being homeless. Um, and and when you're talking about women and children being homeless, you're also talking about a group of people in Irish society um, who are the most, I, I hate using the word vulnerable, but who are the most um, amenable to long-term poverty. They're most at risk of long-term poverty uh, for reasons that are pretty obvious. If we don't decide, if Leo Varadkar doesn't decide, and I don't care how he does it, if he wants to raid the rainy day fund, if he wants to tell Europe, sorry about this, lads, but we're keeping the profit from the sale of AIB and we're going to start building houses, I'll support him 100% in doing that. But if he doesn't start building houses, um, and if the government as a whole... I mean, I happen to know, because I've uh, I've worked reasonably closely with, with Simon Coveney in what he's been trying to do, I happen to know that Simon Coveney would much rather be building houses than all the things that he is doing. Um, and there needs to be a firm government decision that whatever it costs, we're going to start putting real money into building it. I mean, we've made a decision in the recent past to give public land away to enable more private housing to be built. Why the hell aren't we building public housing on that public land? Uh, th- Thomas, uh, I think Fergus has articulated very well there the crisis of social housing but there is a separate problem of of you know people who are trying 
to keep up with the rising pace of rents, uh, a huge capacity restraint where the employment is in Dublin, our loss of competitiveness from that. Uh, in terms of the economics of housing, 37% of the cost of a new house now is taxation in one form or another. It seems to be some issue that, you know, cranes and shovels aren't moving. What do you think is, is, is Leo can do about the economic supply side? Uh, we've just heard what needs to be done on the social side. Well, I, I think he can give certainty. You know, house building takes several years. It, 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 it's a big, long, complicated process, and people have to know what the law will be in four years' time. You can't keep tinkering every budget, every couple of months with the, you know, housing policy. It's, it's nonsense to do that. I think as a society, though, we have to take, make a decision. What does success look like? Is it rising prices, stable prices, or falling prices? Personally, I think it's falling prices. But we have to decide, and then we have to act to make that happen. And the problem is that, that the reality is that rising prices are seen as some kind of sign of economic virility. In fact, it's, it's dead money. It's money that could be used much more productively to go on holidays or to invest in a but company. But if demand is strong you know, and supply doesn't exist, well, surely prices will ergo I, rise. I, I, I don't think that we are serious about meeting demand. And, and <coughs> actually, there's a good piece in, in, in the Sunday Business Post today making the simple point that every time that some, a developer applies for permission to build in a leafy suburb, not only do the residents object, but the TDs and councillors object as well. They, they join in with the, the objection. Really, these kind of things should be welcomed. And there is a simple solution. There's tons of land in Dublin. Anyone who flies into Dublin only has to look at the green fields around Dublin Airport, which you don't see around any other airport in Europe. So there's plenty of land. We know that. Are you talking about planning permission as the problem? Yes, here? the planning permission is a problem. But land needs to be sold by councils with planning and with... Uh, not just you know permission to build, but an obligation to build. And the great thing about property is you can attach any kind of rules you want to a piece of property. You can say nothing can be built here, everything can be built here. I want flats built here. Of course, there are issues with density and so on. That goes. Yeah, just thing. on the density mm. thing. I mean, I'm looking at sites in Clontarf and Tara Street that are over four million an acre, and it strikes me as a no-brainer. A six or seven-story limit is just not appropriate. To, you know, okay, you have your Victorian or George in Dublin, but there's some areas we simply should do what every city in the world has done and go upwards. Well, yeah, it would seem. It would. It's, again, it's obvious we need parts of the city that are that have high skylines. I don't think. We need the odd skyscraper here and there so much as, you know, uh, an agreement about seven stories being appropriate for certain parts of Dublin. And, of course, that's where many people want to live, you know. It's, it's, uh, and we uh, also need to look at, sorry, just yep. Rathgar, Rathmines, Drumcondra. These are the places people want to live. And the d housing density there that was available in the 19th century is far denser than Dublin City Council allows today. I mean, if we could only go back to the past, if we could only go back to the kind of densities that were permitted hundred years ago, it would be a start. This is how people want to live. They want to live in dense housing. So, so do, you, do you think that the body politic grabs how bad the housing situation might get? I don't. I don't still think that the body politic has grasped it at all. It is the single biggest issue facing uh, this, certainly the current government in whatever guise now Leo Radcliffe takes it. Uh, it was in the last government also. Uh, and it's very interesting to see Leo Radcliffe writing his short piece in the Mail on Sunday today uh, about, you know, what he believes he's going to be able to do and the fact that he's going to need luck on his side. And the only thing that he actually I didn't read that. Tell yeah, me the central tenet of what the, he well, said. The central tenet of what he said, actually, oddly enough, he quotes Michael Collins saying that Ireland well, could become a shining light in the world, of course. Baloney. But the one thing that he actually says is that social welfare should not be a way of life. And that goes back to his whole campaign about social welfare cheats and so on. Yes, of course, he's just come out of that department. He was that minister. But that's the only thing that he mentions in terms of what he believes society ought to be about. And I find that quite concerning, given the, the depth of the housing crisis on both fronts, on the fact that people can't rent a house, students can't rent, people can't buy because they're too high, the, the serious issues that, that Fergus has been outlining and many others for, for a very long time. On both sides of the housing equation, there are serious problems. And in that short space, Leo Radker didn't choose to address it. And I actually don't remember Leo Radker addressing it in any substantial way in the recent past. So I do hope 
that when he makes his appointment on Thursday, that he makes one that is a, 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 a deeply uh, conscious one in relation to what he's going to do about housing, in relation to what this next phase of government is going to do about housing. Simon Coveney has said he's willing to stay there, but of course the place is awash with rumours about him wanting to go to DFA because then he could be involved in Brexit. And who could blame him? He has worked very hard in housing, but we are still nowhere close to it and it needs something extraordinary and a big piece, a big picture moment for Leo Radker in relation to housing and I very much want to see that on Thursday. So on Wednesday night we'll have a shiny new Taoiseach and a brand new cabinet and set of ministers. Susan O'Keefe, Thomas Malloy and Fergus Findlay are my guests this morning. You're a veteran cabinets come and go Fergus but you're seemingly here to pontificate on them. Tell us. what Like do you yourself. Ex- exactly. What <laughs> do you expect? Here, here. Uh, um, but what do you expect? I, I think it's it, He's at the start of his, his term as opposed to end of his at the end. Energy, I think, will be one thing. Uh, but new politics is here to stay. It's a bit spancelled. They don't have majority. What are you expecting from Leo's administration? Um, I, suppose I'm, I suppose what I'm expecting is two budgets and then an election. Um, I, think, I think they will try to keep it going for this budget and the next one and then go to the country. After that, I haven't the faintest idea, Ivan. I, I have. Well, do you think he'd be a right-wing Tory boy, or what? I, I think there'll be a. I, I think there's a bit of that. I don't know whether the the, the present configuration of the Doyle will allow that. Um, I, I think he's a torn man in some ways. I, I've watched him fairly closely over the last year, and there are things that people, I think, don't know about him. One of them is that he's completely obsessed with figures. He's a he's a figures man, uh, and he likes to follow the arithmetical calculations from A to B. And I think that has involved him in, I think it, it's one of the things, apart from any right-wing tendencies, it's one of the things that has involved him in that stupid campaign he launched about social welfare fraud because he's as obsessed with tuppence as he is with two billion. Um, uh, and, and that's not something that uh, I, I think people um, know about Leo. Um, my own view, however, is that you have no idea when a Taoiseach is appointed whether he's going to grow or shrink in office. And, um, I, I mean, the day Albert Reynolds was appointed, nobody in the whole world would have predicted that Albert Reynolds would go to his grave with a peace agreement under his belt because there was nothing in his past, nothing in his track record that said Albert Reynolds is going to make history as a peacemaker. Um, the day Brian Cowan was appointed nobody would have said that it was going to be a complete and total disaster the way it was. Maybe he was unlucky, maybe. But everybody said at the time, this is a man who couldn't be more qualified, and couldn't Bryson, be better equipped, yeah. and had the smarts, had everything. Uh, so so you actually don't know. Uh, it has been my observation, for what it's worth in the past, that sometimes the brightest boy in the class finds it hardest to succeed as Taoiseach. One, one thing I want to ask you about is, because there's a number of pieces in the paper today, so this interaction between Micheál Martin uh, and Leo went actually quite well uh, during the week. There was no baggage, it was businesslike, it was pragmatic, and Justine, uh, McCarthy's gone as far in the Sunday Times to say the war is over. What's your sense? Because you did say there will ultimately be another election. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will both be, today's poll, 29% each, you know, it's hard to form a government without one or either. What's your sense of FFFG going forward? My, my strong sense is that Michal Martin has a game plan um, and that game plan um, in, includes the kind of things that Fianna Fáil are traditionally really strong at. On the ground organisation, getting ready, um, developing the, the campaign narrative. Uh, the so ground on. war. The ground war. And, and they're not there yet. They're not ready there. They're not ready for Don't that leary. yet. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole range of kind of local and constituency issues that, that they need to try and get right. And I, I suspect that um, it suits me. So the spider really, and the fly really well. come into my there's parlour. A little, there's a little bit of that about it, I think. Now, it may not work, of course, who knows? Um, Leo Varadkar may capture the public imagination in ways that surprise Fianna Fáil. <laughs> Yeah, yes, Susan, yeah, entirely, in terms of what, what's your expectation for Well, Leo? it's entirely possible that Leo Radker uh, may actually make sure that Fine Gael becomes a stronger party with a stronger identity and that, in fact, you go back to two-party politics, that this whole idea that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are ready uh, to, to, to get into bed together and really there's not that much difference between them. Leo Radker may, may well, I feel, have the kind of vision that says, no, 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 Fine Gael can be 
a more right-wing party uh, than it was before and that I am the man who can build that identity uh, because I come from a different, you know, I don't come from the Civil War thing. I don't have that baggage. I don't wear that hat. I've never More ideological. Potentially, yes. So I'm not entirely sure. I mean, Justin McCarthy and others will 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 remark on this and will talk about the potential for a merger. But I actually am going to go the other way, and I'm going to say I think this may be the moment when they they separate and become Mm. two very distinct more to the left. You think? Yes, (coughs) and that that they will, in the doing of that, become the parties they potentially wanted to be, but have always been sort of held back by the Civil War piece, which is now clearly moving away. And Leo Varadkar is the essence of that moving away. He's, and on the, the other speculation is all about the Cabinet. Someone on the West Coast like Michael Ring, uh, Owen Murphy and Regina Doherty getting promotion. Um, Simon Coveney looking, half looking to get out of housing and to go to uh, foreign affairs. Uh, putting the Department of Finance and Public Expenditure back together under Pascal Donoghue. What would you like to see Susan in terms of uh, the new Cabinet splitting Department of Justice? Yeah, there clearly has to be um, some, some rearrangement for him. He also has to have somebody in the West Coast. I mean, living there as I do in Sligo, uh, it, oh, it is, get your ke- violin it is keenly felt. It is keenly felt when there is no minister representing a place. It does make a difference. It always makes a sure, difference. Sure, ring and the only look after Westport for well, God's uh, sake. No, 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 I'm not. Uh, no, Sligo will get a look in. Michael <laughs> Ring. Michael Ring is a smarter man than that. But in terms of Leo Radker making a decision, he will have to do something uh, about that. He will have to because, of course, some of his independents are involved in the whole rural piece and want. Rural Ireland, and let's face it, with the pressure on housing and, and population in the East Coast, it is a good time and a good argument to be saying the West Coast is a lagging economy. It needs to be brought in. Uh, I also think that he um, should make sure that his Tonishta is a woman. Uh, I think it would be, it would show the correct kind of uh, gender. And would you go as far as here? saying that Francis should not only be kept on as Tonishta but should be kept on in justice? I would like her to, to see her carrying on as Tonishta. I'm not sure about justice. I think she's had a very rocky time. I think it's been a very difficult time uh, and perhaps uh, it would be easier to have a new broom in that department. I think a lot of changes need to be made there uh, uh, not uh, not least in relation to Angarda Shikona. Uh, and I also think people like Owen Murphy who clearly were very strong and very showed themselves very capable during his campaign uh, are likely uh, to be promoted and again you'll have a, but this the whole idea of having Dublin being overrepresented, perhaps, that feeling that it's overrepresented won't play very very well and Simon Coveney is a young man too and therefore he's going to learn from the things that he may have got wrong in this last campaign and he, he's not going to be going away as a potential leader in the future. So Leo would do well to be sure he doesn't play entirely to his to his metro audience in, in, in Dublin. Thomas I don't Malone, want to see that. I've certainly. heard divided views about the splitting of the finance and public expenditure brief. I think Pascal has done a reasonable job. Um, would you put them back together again? Is it too big a brief for one? I, I, I would probably put elements of public reform back, but I, I don't think reform of the public sector has, has finished yet, and I think it's quite a good idea to... Never started, sure. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I certainly started in some parts of the public sector, I can tell you, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a, a long, ongoing thing. I, I, w- I would love to see that department continue and, and continue with a brief to to get, get rid of things as well, you know, just to modernise society. I think that's something that we, we really need. That's one of the things that perhaps most excites me about Varadka. I think he is our first modern politician in quite some time. I think he came of age after the, the Iron Curtain came down. I don't think he, he plays to the right-left kind of debate as much as uh, many of his predecessors do. I think he's a great communicator. I think we've had a bit of a communications deficit for several Tishi now, and it's about time we we kind of uh, we knew where they stood. The other thing I, I think that isn't commented upon enough, or not enough, but but that is very interesting is is Radka's being half Indian. I, I'm I'm half German, and I know that if you're half something else, your your world is a little bit different. And you look at your your country, like Ireland in both our cases, just slightly with the outsider's eye. And I think that's a good thing for a Taoiseach to 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 not be completely embedded in the society that he leads. How and do you think that'll manifest itself? Well. I think he will he will reach out to Asia. I think you know they are the growing economies, and it, it's no coincidence in my head that Tony Blair was half Irish and Good Friday happened on his watch. It's no coincidence in my head that Winston Churchill was half American and Churchill's war aims were essentially hold on until the cavalry come over the hill. I think 
Viratka understands India, he knows India, and uh, he will be he will be looking and, and reaching into the part of the world where we are very, very badly underrepresented economically. You know, we have almost no exports to, to the BRIC nations. So there's a... There's a I think he's going to bring the world okay. to Ireland, and that's a very exciting thing. We have a thing. couple of minutes, uh, just, one, just one thing. If, if you were Taoiseach, if you were Leo, if he had one thing, we say it's 18 months or a year, whatever it is, that you would, each would like to see him do, let it be a small thing or a big thing. Fergus. I suppose, first of all, I should say, I, I take Thomas's point really well. I've always seen myself as half cork, which is really, really difficult. Um, I was actually thinking that when you were saying <laughs> about county divides. Um, <laughs> I, I think if there was one thing I would love to see... Uh, the incoming Taoiseach do it is to uh, tackle um, the culture of the Gardaí um, and the only way in my view you can do that is by tackling the culture of the Department of Justice I think you have to break policing away from national security I think that it is that poisonous mix that has formed a culture and that has become a kind of dead hand on any notion of reform within the guards. Uh, we're the only country in the world that doesn't have a security service which is separate from policing. Um, working okay. hand in glove, etc. But that's, Got that. the, that's the one And it's not only important, it's urgent. Susan? Uh, making civil servants more accountable, uh, I think, would be a big change in terms of the way business is done in Does that country. mean fireable? Um, potentially, yes. I mean, that, that, this sounds like we're making it sound too easy. Of course, it's very difficult to, to, to move into that accountable area, but certainly that's what we ought to be thinking about. And of course, I've already said the housing the housing crisis is a crisis and it, it is a big thing that he needs to address. Thomas, the genie gives you one wish. I would like to see him to. reform the education system, uh, reform the leaving More money search. for Trinity, is it? More money for Trinity, more <laughs> money for all universities. Uh, but, but, Here but, we go. No, we certainly need to put... Less uh, money for Trinity, more money in primary education. We, yes. we need... No, here, primary here. has got a lot, but we, we need third level to be all put up. on a sustainable More basis. We need to get rid of rote learning in second level. We need to reform the, the, the leaving set. We need to stop schools being secretarian. We need to put a level playing field right the way through. Uh, we certainly need to make the leaving set fit for purpose. Okay, a lucky bag of d- what do you call dolly mixture of all sorts And then there. after lunch, what will you do? <laughs> Indeed. My thanks to journalist Susan O'Keefe, Thomas Malloy, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at TCD and Fergus Finlay, Chief Executive of the children's charity Bernardo's. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. 